1: Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. This show is all about
2: sharing inspiration, uplifting stories, and practical career advice
1: from innovative, original thinking, and pioneering women from around the world. You can find us here every second week. Or why not sign up at don'tstopusnow.co so you never miss a show. Plus, you'd make our day if you could rate or review us. It really gives us a boost in more ways than one. It sure does. Now, it's time for this week's show. Hello and welcome to our first episode for 2024. We hope you got off to a great start with your year and are really enjoying life. We certainly do hope so. And, you know, we are both pumped
2: as we have such a blockbuster treat for you today.
1: We sure do. Ellie Norman runs marketing, communications and fan engagement at one of the world's biggest sporting brands, that hallowed and famed football club, Manchester United. Our minds were officially blown when Ellie told us she has 1.1 billion fans to be thinking about around the world. 1 billion, it really is just
2: extraordinary, isn't it? You know, it's both incredibly exciting and almost a bit intimidating as a marketer to think of that size of a market of, you know, you don't have customers, you have fans, and there's 1.1 billion around the world, totally. (laughs) And as Ellie explains, you know, there are lots of different types of fans, not to mention different languages and countries depending on where they're based. So, you know, it's a really pretty incredible and rare position she's in.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, it's not just the iconic Manchester United that Ellie has incredible insight with. Because before she joined Manchester United, she was Global Director for Marketing and Communications at Formula One. Another ginormous brand, one which, as you'll hear, she helped make way more accessible and ginormous. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's been such a great conversation
2: with Ellie as you'll hear. We will be covering how not going to university has driven Ellie's career choices in a good way, how she makes big decisions about her career, why sports marketing flips the traditional marketing model on its head, how Ellie helped reimagine Formula One from an elite billionaires' club to something way more accessible, and how she handles the Man Manu brand and its gutted one billion
1: fans when the team isn't
2: performing so well on the field.
1: I just love this conversation. Ellie's perspectives are so insightful and fascinating, and we think you'll love every minute of it too. So I shall stop talking right away so you can be inspired by the positive and brave Ellie Norman. Ellie Norman, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now.
0: Thank you so much, Greta and Claire, for having me. Uh, Really delighted to join you today. We are very excited and we know our listeners are already on the edge of their seats,
2: fascinated to learn more about your pretty amazing career to date. But a question we like to start with all of our guests at the very outset is if you were at a dinner party and sitting next to someone you had not met before and they said to you, Ellie, so tell me, what do you do? How do you typically answer that question?
0: You know, I always play it, I think incredibly straight, and I would normally reply and say I work in marketing and communications.
2: Okay, so you really hold back the big punchline of where you work the big then. reveal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it normally is like, what where's that? And I'll be like, in football at, you know, Manchester United. And it is such a well-known club and such a big club across the world that it inevitably draws sort of interest. It was the same with Formula One. And I think people on the whole are very passionate about live sports. You certainly find that people will either love where you work or they'll be like, oh, I got to say um, I'm a fan <laughs> of whatever other team and uh, we hate you guys.
2: <laughs> I can understand um how... Yes, uh, it probably gets a little bit tired and why you keep it and play it very straight. (laughs) But now, you haven't always been in the sporting world, have you? If we kind of look back, perhaps you could briefly tell us how your career started.
0: I left school at 18. I would say I have high EQ um, and average IQ. So um, I decided not to go to university and sort of really step out Into uh, the big wide world. I love learning. I love being with people. I'm curious to sort of almost learn by osmosis and sort of observation. So I started actually going to work for an agency.
2: What drew you towards the world of marketing?
0: Honestly, it was something that I wasn't familiar with at all. Uh, Certainly, sort of back in the sort of late 90s, it wasn't a sort of career. That I had heard an awful lot about but it was really sort of thinking about all of the different sort of job adverts and then thinking do you know what I've got great attention to detail I love working with people I'm hard working you know some of those kind of qualities are in a junior role that I really just applied for it fell into it and then I think a combination of my sort of passion and enthusiasm for cars um I obviously was successful in getting that role. That's fantastic. And it's
1: brilliant that you just sort of landed into a career path that you clearly absolutely love.
0: And now, 25 years in, I'm so passionate about marketing and more broadly, human decision making and uh, behaviour. And that sort of, for me, really is the core of great marketing.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And at what point in your career do you think you realised that?
0: I think certainly when I had moved client side and I'd spent some time at Honda and worked with great people, a phenomenal creative agency in Wyden and Kennedy. And the sort of absolute focus and the clarity around telling the story of the power of dreams and the impact that you can have in changing the perception at that time of a very reliable auto manufacturer but certainly in the UK perhaps a sort of perception of pipe and slippers Mm -hmm. as a sort of driver and being consistently telling the story of the power of dreams and seeing the perception of the brand change i suppose a, a little bit of a light bulb moment where that for me then became a sort of choice of this is an industry i really love being part of
1: yeah and when you move from honda i think to virgin media for me it's like i look at i look at your career path and i go oh that's really kind of a bit strange because it was you know that sort of a telco subscription model Quite different, I would have thought, to Honda, a car company, and then subsequently F1 and Man United. What was it that sort of led you to go to Virgin Media?
0: I think having left school and not gone to university, it really drives me to continue to sort of learn and develop and sort of hone my skills. Uh, Number one came from a phone call to say, I think there's a role here that you should apply for and you'd be great. And the second thing linked into sort of my reflections is I tend to sort of carry a mindset of, well, what's the worst that can happen? So if it doesn't work out, um, I need to go and get another job. But what if it did work out? And as I think about how many years we're all working Why not just enjoy the sort of journey of where you're going and really sort of focus on what can you learn along that journey? So I learned a brand new industry. I learned single market, the commercials, really sort of grew um, a new muscle in terms of, for me, sort of return on investment and media mix modeling and so much stuff that hadn't been a focus of my role in Honda.
1: That makes complete sense. and I love the way you're looking at it and sort of using that lens of learning. So there you are. And then along comes, as
2: a car lover, the global director of marketing for Formula One, which sounds just so exciting. What were the highlights of your time with Formula One?
0: Oh, so many. If I was to distill it, uh, number one, I worked for... Two incredible men by the name of Sean Bratches and Chase Carey, and the highlight for me was joining Formula One um, in 2017, just as Liberty Media had bought it. But what really attracted me to sort of Formula One, aside from working for two great sort of leaders, I was able to really, really thrive in reimagining sort of Formula One and transforming it. It wasn't the sort of exciting, appealing, cool sport that it is today. And actually, what I again really enjoy is almost when there's a problem to fix or something to improve and sort of really recognising that in some sort of instances, you could almost describe it as a little bit of a sort of underutilized sport in the sense of it really carried the perception of being sort of a billionaire, elitist kind of boys club. It's an incredible sport that has so much more to offer. And so I think my single sort of most proud moment was really the sort of transformation of Formula One into, I would describe it as like one of the most desirable sports now that really has grown its fan base, new audiences. And I really think that all uh, stemmed from marketing playing a part of that with a new brand strategy and sort of rebranding and transforming that sport.
2: Yeah. You know, you mentioned really early on that you're strong in EQ. Now, I can imagine because when you think of F1, you also think of all of the, for want of a better word, it might not be the right F1 word, all the syndicates of the different brands competing in F1 must have been quite an interesting marketing and brand and stakeholder juggling challenge with lots of passion all around for those different brands that are a subset of the total F1 package. What did you learn about managing that kind of multiplicity of stakeholders and brands?
0: I think you certainly have to really spend the time to listen and to learn because you're absolutely right. There are so many brands within Formula One and often they compete with each other. And yet the ecosystem, when the ecosystem is working brilliantly, everyone can coexist. And so my sort of approach to it is, first of all, really listen learn and understand these sort of uh, perspectives and how partners see the situation and really sort of take people in on a journey as to how do you distill that and then sort of what does good look like to try to find a space which is if we can't do that could we do that a big part for me is just being comfortable with ambiguity for me um Nothing's ever certain in life, but you can have clarity and being able to just sort of go with the flow to a certain extent and accept that there is an awful lot of ambiguity in everything. And the context and the system in which you are working is constantly changing. And I think the more that you can become comfortable with that and just be really focused on what is the outcome that we all want to achieve I genuinely believe there is a way to do it and there's possibility everywhere.
2: Which is such a wonderful mindset and I'm sure that becomes a little bit infectious as you deal with people too and it's all about looking for the win-win, isn't it, versus, you know, sort of a zero-sum-gain or a win-lose type scenario. But no doubt, had its challenges along the way, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Uh, Many, many challenges and, you know, there are so many sort of learnings where you reflect on time so you go, oh, gosh, I didn't do that very well or oh, that was a big learning. I wouldn't do it like that again. But I yeah. suppose you often learn more from those situations and those sort of examples. And it is all part of that sort of uh, squiggly journey we're all on.
2: Yes, you can say that again. And, you know, it seems like both particularly with Formula One and now your current role at Manchester United, that content in sort of engaging fans must be so crucial. How have you had to change your approach to thinking about content as all of the different technologies and apps and the like have evolved pretty quickly in the last five to ten years in particular?
0: I think the sort of common thread is certainly within Honda, sort of Virgin Media, Formula One and Manchester United. It has always been about understanding your sort of audience. So whether that's a customer or a fan, understanding their sort of behavior and attitude and actually what is the right story to tell and being really clear on what do we think We want them to think, feel, and do as a sort of outcome. And that's clearly evolved from being heavily sort of focused in the more sort of corporate world, if I could describe sort of maybe Honda and uh, Virgin Media like that. That's evolved from advertising. And where sports tends to sort of really exist is, number one, you have fans versus customers. They love you have a sense of ownership of your club and actually the evolution of the sort of media landscape and those different channels means that the storytelling is still at the sort of crux of it and being able to tell stories brilliantly but the way that we do that whether it's with sort of creators fans telling the stories themselves, and almost having it as a much more sort of two-way dialogue, that's been a really big shift versus TV advertising. And and in part, that's also due to, for me, having, if I describe it almost as an inverted triangle. And what I mean by that is, in Honda and Virgin Media, from a sort of user journey point of view if I thought about my paid media I had a large budget I was always trying to generate earned media and typically you have a much smaller owned media and in sport that's entirely reversed because you are in in some part yes you're the discipline of your sport so we are a football club first and foremost and the ambition is to be at the top of English European and world football, but we obviously are, in some respects, a media and entertainment organisation. The reason I describe it like that is because we obviously have content and an abundance of content opportunities via our sort of men's first team, women's first team, the academy players, individual athletes within those sort of teams as well. Clearly, these sort of 90 minutes of live game. And so actually, your owned becomes the biggest thing. And yes, we obviously still will sort of work with content creators to generate earned and then a very, very small paid. So a complete sort of flip of the model, number one, and number two, obviously, as there are new platforms and new ways to engage we're constantly sort of evolving how we show up in the most relevant way for our different supporters and fans
1: yeah i I love the way you describe that, and it must be quite interesting as a marketer to have that sort of flipped on its head, particularly when you know fans are creating a lot of content and you're not necessarily controlling it. Have you had to sort of adapt your way of thinking as a marketer in order to sort of let go to a certain extent or, you know, not freak out.
0: Yes. And the first biggest, I would say, test of that came actually when I was at sort of Formula One. In 2017, we sort of commissioned the Netflix Drive to Survive. It's so incredible because someone else is telling your story. And that comes with risk, but it also comes with reward. And so actually the sort of conversation internally and also sort of with the teams was we have to be brave and almost put our brand into the hands of box to box the production company, and sort of Netflix, because they are experts in telling long form stories. And if we tell our own story, we are typically going to take down those kind of story arches and every great story will have highs lows there's heroes there's villains there's tension and it's really hard to do that when you're controlling when you want to kind of wrap your arms around and control your brand so a big part for me was getting sort of agreement that we hand everything over for editorial control to sort of Netflix and equally it's not in Netflix interest to upset everyone because if you want to continue making a series and the first one is successful you need people to partner with you and to have that sort of level of trust now clearly I'm sure there were some people who were disappointed or upset with how some of the kind of story came through but I think that it's been managed incredibly well and I think they're on I know seven seasons have been sort of commissioned so I think that shows once again, there is always a way through to get to a great result.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I think the bravery is amazing because really you've started a whole genre of docu-series on sport and it's it's just sort of taken off, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a real life soap opera, you know, and, and the personalities and all the behind the scenes. Um, it's fascinating.
1: It is and it's a real entry to the sport you know I've watched a number of these documentaries that I would never have thought about being interested in the sport I really think it is a incredible sort of innovation in marketing and I'd love you to cast your mind back because I'm personally really curious
2: when the opportunity first came into your radar to join Manchester United what were the kind of thoughts that first ran through your mind when you heard that this was a potential destination for you
0: first thoughts were oh football (laughs) (laughs) and I say that because as a kid I grew up with my mum and dad until the age of seven and then I live with my mum and my stepdad and my stepdad is a Kiwi so sports at home for us was not football it was rugby and it was cricket (laughs) Um, so the first thought was like, oh, football. I never, never imagined myself working in football. Then, oh, Manchester United, great brand, absolutely huge. Again, the level of scrutiny, the fandom that exists around that club, coupled with the fact that for the last sort of 10 years, we haven't met our sort of objectives of being at the top of English, kind of European and world football. And so I love love the challenge, actually, of coming into a football club, learning to appreciate football, and sort of now, obviously, I watch a lot and I go a lot. Really take time to listen to fans because they are all over the world and their needs are different as to whether you live in... Manchester or close to Manchester, and you can be a regular attendee as a supporter at Old Trafford, Um, but that's 74,000 people. But there are 1.1 billion fans and followers across (sighs) the globe. It's such a responsibility and a privilege, but it's actually, for me, that's the sort of joy and the excitement of how do we best serve those fans, no matter where they are in the world, because they will identify And want to feel like they belong to us because we're their club. And that's a sort of privilege to have, but actually their needs, you know, demographic attitude, behavior aside will be very, very different depending on, you know, physically, where do you live in the world? I think about it almost like as a business, a sport, and that's a wonderfully knotty challenge. But that for me is the sort of motivation, wanting to sort of join Manchester United and sort of really love the sort of challenge every day. And, you know, your results, they're public, like week in, week out.
2: I can only imagine, you know, I mean, more than a billion fans, I mean, my mind is boggling at the segmentation and the <laughs> different comms and, as you say, the different needs depending on where they are, how old they are, all the rest of it. You know, you mentioned that the club hasn't been performing in terms of football, perhaps to the fans' wishes, if not expectations. You know, that must create an extra sort of, I imagine, a bit more pressure cooker environment, but certainly real challenges for you in the, the marketing and the comms. How do you go about managing the pressure of that?
0: There's an awful lot of pressure. And, you know, that pressure is is certainly felt most acutely with the football department. And I suspect, you know, the sort of athletes, the manager, the uh, sort of backroom staff really kind of feel that. We have a responsibility to support first and foremost our football colleagues. And secondly, we have a responsibility to continue to talk to and engage with our fans. So from a team point of view internally, when I'm catching up with my team and we're sort of planning what's coming and sort of discussing some of these challenges that you've raised in the question, it's always a sense for me of what are we in control of and what are we not in control of? And let's really understand the context. And and the fantastic thing with fans and supporters is you have instant feedback. You know, when your fans are really disappointed, despondent, sort of angry, that's instant. So we have in our control the levers that we have. So that's brand, that's creative, that's comms, that's content, that's fan engagement. Let's really listen to that instant feedback. Let's also recognise we can't just stop doing everything, but what we can do is be very, very sensitive to that sort of feedback. But there are still incredible things happening throughout the club, and that could be, again, in terms of youth development, it could be in our local communities, and it could be really highlighting the interaction that the players have with fans or within our kind of local community, and that's our responsibility to keep telling those stories, even when there has been you know disappointment on the sort of pitch,
2: yeah, just out of curiosity, how big is your team? I have no idea the sort of this this number of people who work for Manchester
0: United. in terms of the sort of Premier League. And with these sort of big clubs in sort of Europe, we're at the sort of top end. So just over a thousand employees at Manchester United. And then I think, as you would perhaps imagine, when we host matches at home, obviously we have a sort of large casual workforce who then will sort of come in predominantly your sort of security, your hospitality, your kind of retail And that will often be for 74,000 match attendees, you'll be looking at sort of a couple of thousand people. Within those sort of just over a thousand, my team is 100 people, just over 100 people across those sort of disciplines of brand, creative, comms, content and fan engagement. So quite broad.
1: Ellie, I love the way you frame things. You seem to sort of be able to frame things in a really positive way. And I'm sure that that is incredibly empowering for your team and helps with resilience as well. Is that something that just comes naturally to you or have you had to build that muscle?
0: Well, thank you. You'd need to definitely ask my team as to whether it's empowering or um, equally exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Probably a bit of both. Yeah, I suspect so. I always see the positive, actually. And I don't know where that came from or whether I don't know whether you're sort of born with that or your environment is always looking for the sort of positives in something. But my first instinct is what's the positive, seeing the sort of best and the opportunity. And I do think that that has really helped with sort of resilience? Because we all suffer setbacks, but it's how quickly do we sort of get up and learn from it and go again?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I would imagine that at Man United, you're seeing quite a lot of, of techniques around resilience because the team must need a lot of it. There's so much sort of pressure that they feel when they're not performing, but it's not just on the pitch it's in social it it must be really tough
0: yeah and um, I think each of us as individuals will recognize how the energy inside ourselves even how we carry ourselves or walk into a room how different that can be depending on whether you've got people around you that are wanting to lift you up and succeed or whether you've got people around you who are sort of draining that energy. And I think one of the things, particularly with sort of um, athletes and sports people, is in most cases, particularly when you are, say, playing away from home, people are really wanting to get inside your mind and chip away. And whether that's, you know, you're away, proud, chanting, media, sort of perhaps picking up on mistakes, the results. So I think. There is so much and and part of, I think, the evolution of sports and why it's so sort of interesting. And this is not my sort of area of specialism, but actually just the psychological side of sport and sort of nutrition, as well as your your sort of how physically prepared are you? That for me is and how that continues to evolve with sort of science and psychology is so sort of interesting it's brilliant to be sort of close to that as well yeah definitely that whole peak
2: performance sports psychology the power of visualization all those and yeah as you say nutrition that fascinates me too definitely super exciting and you're at the epicenter i'm sure so it's
1: yeah it's interesting you know again as we as we talk about this there's sort of layers and layers of why this job is really 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 fascinating uh just gets better doesn't it
0: (laughs) It's certainly those, um, you wake up in the morning and it's exciting because you pinch yourself and you're like, okay, wow, how lucky are we that we are working in sports, in, you know, entertainment. We bring joy to people and there aren't that many sort of roles where you can really wake up and say that.
1: No, that's for sure. What a nice purpose to have. One question, Ellie, slightly left field, but I think it needs to be asked because you've been in very male-dominated industries for pretty much all of your career. You know, sport isn't exactly known for, at least not known for its inclusivity and for having that many women at the top. What situations have you found yourself in and how have you dealt with them? as you've sort of gone along on that career journey in these male-dominated spaces?
0: It's certainly become less male-dominated. And equally, I've never really thought I'm surrounded by men. And again, the sort of positive of perhaps being sort of more on the minority side gender-wise is, again, what opportunity does that present you with? How do you become more memorable? Or what's your opportunity to kind of stand out? But now where I am, in our sort of exec leadership team, there are eight of us and three of us are women. Great. I mean, it's so great in that I think often the sort of perception is they're still heavily sort of male-dominated. But I think that we are, I would say, perhaps one of the sort of leaders actually of having that many women in the sort of exec sort of leadership team, that's fantastic and it's our responsibility to ensure that we are continuing to sort of lift up and promote at uh, the talent that exists in the rest of the club.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And, I, again, there's that wonderful positive framing of yours about, you know, how do you make yourself more memorable as a result of being one of the only or few women around the table. I'm curious, Ellie, a question about sort of you more. What does success look like for you personally?
0: Oh, so that certainly changed. If you were to go back to a young 20-year-old Ellie, it certainly would have been much more sort of status. So where am I working? What's my job title? How much am I earning? Um, as you come into the sort of forty three year old Ellie, success for me is have I made a difference in what I'm doing? so what what impact have I had on people, and how do I leave people feeling hopeful and that they can go out and achieve more than they thought was possible? And with family and friends and sort of husband, it's quality time, being present and having good health. Well, you sound super clear about those things. <laughs> it's fantastic. Like I'm a big fan of a new year, new start of even just kind of mentally resetting. I don't set sort of New Year's resolutions, but I do, I do think about those things. And when we get to the end of the year, what is it? that we've sort of done or achieved and does it align to those things.
1: Well, that's a fantastic segue because as you will be our first guest for 2024, what are you excited about for
0: 2024? Oh, very excited for 2024 because it's another year round the sun. From a work point of view, We um, announced a new sort of minority investor in Sir Jim We're in the process of that being ratified. But very talented team at Ineos, clearly with Sir Jim, but also Sir Dave Browsford, uh, Jean-Claude Blanc. That for me is exciting because it's an injection of outside expertise and it will really allow us to sort of develop and grow certainly to move the club in the right direction back to being at the top of English, European and World Football. So I'm really excited about that. And equally, the ability from that just to evolve our internal culture. And so we've got a a very supportive culture internally, but obviously by having sort of new expertise and perhaps ways of thinking and working coming in, There is obviously the opportunity for us to continue to evolve. So I'm super excited about that. Even more more excited to then consider, certainly through a sort of brand marketing sort of comms content lens is how do we distill that internal culture, vision, mission, values, behavior and ensure that that comes through in how we're showing up um, externally with our fans and supporters. And personally, I love to travel, so really looking forward to some trips with my husband this year.
1: Fantastic. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a big year, and I'm sure that Manchester United fans, of which two of my nephews are vehement Manchester United fans, will be very happy to hear (laughs) about the injection you know, thank you so much, Ellie. It's been a brilliant conversation. We've really loved it. If people want to learn more about Manchester United or follow you, where should they go?
0: Ooh, so definitely do the club. And you'll find, obviously, a website, manunited.com. We've got a great app and we're on all good social media platforms. Uh, so you'll find us there. And for me personally, sort of LinkedIn.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you again. It's been a fab conversation and it's great to get to know you a little bit more. And thank you for sharing your fantastic insights. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great.
0: Thank you both so much. One for asking me to join you. Um, It's a real privilege um, and I feel honored to be part of your series. So thank you very much. Thanks, Ellie.
1: Wasn't
2: that a fantastic conversation?
1: Yeah, it sure was. You know, I just love how Ellie frames challenges. You know, she's always looking for the positive and enjoying the journey.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that really resonated with me is how Ellie asks herself what impact she has on people, and also in particular, how she leaves people feeling hopeful that last one was such a unique and powerful aim to have I've actually written it in my diary to remind me because I think it's a really amazing impactful thing to think about you know particularly in this day and age where world events and media coverage you know actually breed I think a lack of hope
1: yeah I totally agree it's really really such a great thing to be you know wanting to do yeah and it's a fresh perspective i've never heard anyone articulate it in that way no no i i think i think you're right and i I think related to that is how well ellie appears to really know herself you know knowing she's got really strong eq and playing to that strength of hers yeah and look she'd probably need it with more than 100 people on her team (laughs) she certainly would well that's this episode done and dusted We hope you loved episode one for 2024 as much as we did. Stay tuned for our next episode with a woman on a mission to change the game of venture capital for women. Yippee for that, I say. Have a great
2: rest of your week. Kick some goals and have fun. Ciao for now.